Have I told you about Sammy Jenkins? Mm. Yeah. I'm sick of hearing about the guy. What about John G? You think he's still here? Who? Johnny G, the guy you're looking for. I mean, that's why you haven't left town, am I right? Maybe. Leonard, look, you have to be very careful. Why? The other day, you mentioned that maybe somebody was trying to set you up, get you to kill the wrong guy. Oh, well, I go on facts, not recommendations, but thank you. Lenny, you can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. Why not? Because your notes could be unreliable. Memory's unreliable. Ah, oh, please. No, 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 really. Oh, Memory's I... not perfect. It's not even that good. Ask the police. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable. Bad. Cops don't catch a killer by sitting around remembering stuff. Right. They, I, they collect I, facts. That's not what I'm they make notes and they draw conclusions. Facts, not memories. That's how you investigate. I know. It's what I used to do. Look, memory can change the shape of a room. It can change the color of a car. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation. They're not a record. And they're irrelevant if you have the facts. Oh, yeah. Tell me more about how memory sucks. Can you tell me more about how my memory sucks, Leonard? Oh my god, that would be so good. Um, it changes the shape of the room, the color of a car. Um, why do I always have to write things down? Can you tell me about that, Leonard? Cheers, mate. everybody and welcome to another episode of the cinema psych podcast the podcast where psychology meets film i am your host as always dr alex swan and today we're gonna do a quick little solo episode just me and in this episode it's been a couple of years since the podcast launched and I want to go back to the first episode where I introduced the podcast, episode 000, as I, um, as I called it. I really should have just called it episode one. But you live, you learn, and you get loves. Uh, so I want to revisit the film that we talked about in that first episode, in that 000 episode. Now, if you have not listened to that one, well, you might definitely hear an audio difference. <laughs> definitely an audio difference. I had recorded that episode using the built-in mics on my uh, iMac at the time and was using the uh, Audacity, the free program, to edit and do all that stuff. So in the last two years, definitely the quality, I hope, of the podcast. I know I can hear it when I do editing, but and then the final product, of course. But it has been two years and, uh, you know, the quality has gotten quite a bit better. So that's one big difference. The, the other big difference um, in the last two years uh, since finishing that episode is I didn't spend a lot of time on it and I want to spend a little bit more time on it so what so what film am I talking about well it's Memento Memento 
came out in 2000. It's uh, a film that was written by Jonathan Nolan and directed by his brother. You know him. You love him. Christopher Nolan. It's not... Um, it's not like one of his biggest hits, but it is one of the longer simmering hits of, uh, or films of his, of his, uh, filmography. And it's, you know, it's one of his earlier films, you know, he, he broke out onto the scene, of course, in the mid two thousands by doing, you know, the prestige and the Batman, uh, trilogy that he did. And then of course, you know, recently, more recently with Inception in the last decade and, um, just a couple of years ago or last year, I guess, with, um, the time one and that name escapes me right now. But in any, in any case, uh, I, I wanted to revisit Memento. And the reason why I wanted to revisit Memento, well, it's been two years since I've done that, uh, since I've done, or more than two years, I should say, since I did that episode. And that episode was, uh, was, was only half um, sort of the film discussion that this show has become. And I played a couple of different clips, um, one from the movie, a couple of uh, other clips, you know, one from from finding uh, Nemo with Dory and everything. And then I pay, played uh, one of the f- uh, sort of familiar clip about Clive Wearing, an actual, true, uh, real-life amnesic. Um, so, you know, I wanted to sort of play around with the portrayal as it was, but I didn't get to spend a lot of time on it. And granted, this is a solo episode, so there's not a ton uh, of back and forth, because there is no back and forth. So this episode is really going to um, be a little bit more deeper of an exploration of the things that I talked about in that first episode. So some background, in case you're not familiar with Memento. Uh, Memento came out in 2000, like I said, directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, you know, Interstellar, all that stuff, right? Uh and it stars Guy Pierce as the the character uh, Leonard Shelby, and Leonard has a condition, as he is oft to say, during his uh, during his encounter with pretty much everyone. I have this condition, uh, and then a couple of uh, Matrix alums. In just basically a year after the Matrix came out, Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants as he's known in the biz, and then Carrie Ann Moss, who play some really different characters from their characters in uh, in The Matrix just a year prior, right? It's wild. Uh, but then there are only other a uh, few other bit actors. It's really just a three... It's kind of really a three-person story, but focused on... Uh, focused primarily on Leonard and, and how he deals with his condition so let's jump into the psychology of this and see what is good and what isn't so good about the portrayal of memory in memento okay first and foremost as i said before the bumper there uh this is a story about memory and it was a short story written by jonathan nolan and he adapted it into the screen but screenplay for uh, his brother, Christopher. And it's specifically about a character who suffers from 
anterograde amnesia. So what is anterograde amnesia? Well, let me let me try to explain this the best I can without visual aids, of course. So imagine a time point where brain trauma occurs. Okay, so um, time point brain trauma. So there's some sort of brain trauma. Now, retrograde amnesia is the kind of amnesia that you see presented quite frequently in soap operas and other kinds of TV shows and movies where the character doesn't remember things that happened prior to that time point of brain trauma. So that's called retrograde amnesia. And that's the kind of amnesia that most people are familiar with. So that's the kind of amnesia where it's like, I don't know who I am. Can somebody help me? Can somebody tell me who I am? What my name is? You know, dramatic, of course. Um, And retrograde amnesia generally occurs with trauma to the cortex, because that's the kind of idea here is that um, when a a new memory is formed, it's essentially distributed out to uh, neurons in the cortex part of your brain, the the stuff that you're probably most familiar with, with that represents the brain, the convolutions and all of that, uh, the outside, essentially the outside bits of the brain. And so when there's trauma to the outside of the brain, let's say a concussion, uh, then it's entirely possible that the cleavage that happens when your brain is tossed back and forth inside your solid skull, that um, at those cleavage sites, connections are broken and cells end up dying and you forget stuff, which, you know, is likely to happen. But most of the time, retrograde amnesia isn't as significant as it plays in the movies and TV shows. Okay, but that's not the kind of amnesia that's in Memento. The kind of amnesia that's represented in Memento, as I said, is called anterograde amnesia. And this is the inability to form new memories from the point forward of that brain trauma. So from the time that brain trauma occurred later in that person's life, into the future. So not being able to form new memories, okay? Not being able to form new memories. And so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the other film that this is highly represented in, in, which is Finding Nemo, of course, and then, of course, Finding Dory. But then also... Another film that my my students bring up when I talk about amnesia is Fifty First Dates uh, with Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler and how, you know, she goes through a day. Uh, Drew Barrymore's character, she goes through a day and remembers the things that occur during that day. But then when she goes to sleep, it all gets wiped away. Um, and then so when she wakes up, um, it's a new fresh day from where she last remembers starting, which is an interesting scenario. And I do believe it is based on a uh, true story, maybe a little uh, dramatized. It, it, it's possible um, that from a neurological standpoint that 
consolidation can't occur for some reason once this person goes to sleep. And so vestiges of the previous day's memories are completely lost. Uh, but I, but what I tend to do when I bring up anterograde amnesia, especially within the context of memento, is I try to tell my students that this is actually quite a different scenario. Memento is more similar, as I said in my previous episode, to how Dory characterizes her conditions. They essentially say the same things within the movie, uh, movies. So uh, in Memento, Guy Pierce as Leonard says, I have this condition. Well, that's the thing. I have this condition. A condition? It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. I have no short-term memory. I know who I am. I know all about myself. I just, since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. And next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. <laughs> I don't even know if I've met you before. So if I seem a little strange or rude or something, uh, I've told you this before, haven't I? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to mess with you, but... <laughs> so weird you don't remember me at all no we've talked a bunch of times i'm sure we have yeah. well, what's the last thing you remember my wife what's it like it's like waking it's like you just woke up that must suck that's all backwards i mean like Maybe you get an idea about what you want to do next, but you don't remember what you just did. And then in Finding Nemo, Dory says, I suffer from short-term memory loss. And that's a phrase that her parents tried to, that we learn, you know, in Finding Dory, that her parents taught her to say over and over and over again so she'd be able to tell other people. So it's quite a it's quite a parallel there, and they only came out a few years apart. So I don't know if uh, the folks at Pixar took some pages out of the Nolan's playbook there, but it, it pretty much is closer to how interrograde amnesia works in real life versus what Fifty First Dates might represent. So Leonard suffers from anterograde amnesia, uh, and so he can't form new memories. And so he tells several people this story throughout his throughout the film and um, and his his journey, and because he doesn't know who he's told, and so he continues to tell the same people over and over again. And they're like, yeah, 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 I know what your 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 story is, but he he doesn't actually phrase it really well. And this could be for two reasons. Um, the first reason is more of a filmmaking reason. Uh, the f that we're setting up Leonard to be an unreliable narrator, and so he doesn't have all of the answers. He also only learned of his condition after he uh, received the brain trauma. So he could just be... Uh, reciting something that he's heard other people say and he's had to write it down and um, maybe some implicit learning occurred after that. It's a little shaky as far as um, the way that 
they made that work. But the second reason is it 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 could be just, you know, a mistake <laughs> that that the Nolans didn't understand amnesia as well as they could have, especially interrogate amnesia and how memory works. I mean, this was 20 years ago, so a lot has a, a lot of new information has changed, even though we've had uh, real people like Clive Wearing and um, uh, Henry Malazin, H.M., these really uh, prolific characters and people within psychology and cognitive psychology. So it's kind of hard to tell from a storytelling standpoint whether or not they knew what they were doing. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt here and just say that Leonard doesn't really know how to explain his condition as well as maybe he could have, right? So rather than saying, like, I have enterograde amnesia, here's what that means, you know, instead of going into, like, some uh, uh, very plain and uh, laborious description uh, that is it's medical and, and, and hard to follow, he, he just goes through, you know, this, this phrasing of, I have short-term memory loss. So that, that way people understand it. It's like, oh, things that happened recently, you're not going to be able to remember. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Um, you know, just to make sure that that the audience doesn't have to be like, OK, uh, thumb through their intro psych textbook if they still have it and uh, come up with whatever it is that interrogate amnesia really means. Right. <laughs> so they do a decent job at it as filmmakers, by the way, they do a decent job at it. There's especially one scene uh, or actually it's technically two snippets of a scene with a cut scene in between. Um, and so before I explain this scene with re respect to am uh, amnesia and the way that they portray it, I should, I guess, uh, explain the plot uh, or as far as the, I should explain the, this, the way that the story unfolds for the audience. It's a series of vignettes especially uh, it's a series of vignettes i should say a series of scenes that play out um and the movie is cut into two basically two halves and those halves are interleaved with each other there is uh, a half that is uh played in color and there's a half that is played in black and white and the uh, part of the film, the part of the story that is played in color actually goes backwards in time as we go later and later into the movie. So we're going backwards in time. And then at the end of the movie, we meet up with the black and white part of the, the film, which are, inner, like I said, interleaved with the color versions, which are going forward in time. So the first time we actually meet the uh, Leonard Shelby uh, in black and white is the beginning of the time sequence that is displayed in the entire length of the runtime. So there are very good uh, edit. There is very good editing for you to get really confused. My students get really confused with this story quite often. I think it's it's actually kind of uh, uh, joyful and I enjoy it quite a bit because <laughs> it's just like, I've watched the movie several times 
and I still find new things all the time. And this this particular semester, I've uh, my students pointed to me a a new one, which is which is really great, and I'll get to that in just a minute. So now that you have a background uh, about how the plot is set up, my the the scene that that they do a very good job, they being the filmmakers, do a very good job of making the audience really engage with Leonard um, in his anterograde amnesia is a scene that I won't, that I, that I will try not to give too much away here, but of course, spoilers. He is interacting with Carrie Ann Moss's character, Natalie, and we find out um, from one scene to the next. So, like I said, it's going backwards because these are in these are in color. We see Leonard frantically searching for a pen, and he's he has um, got an internal monologue going on. Stay focused. Find a pen. Gotta write this down. Gotta write it down. Concentrate. 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 Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. We hear a door slam on the out at on the outside of the house that he is in. And we see that it's Natalie coming out of her car. She slammed the car door. And then the scene ends and goes to a black and white scene. And then, of course, since we have to then go backwards in time, we have to figure out what happened for Leonard to be so frantic to find a pen. Well, it turns out that something did happen, and he was really trying really hard to make sure he didn't forget that but the car door slamming takes him out of that moment and he immediately forgets it's it's quite a good scene it's quite a good scene but let's dive into anterograde amnesia and how it manifests and and um, what it looks like so anterograde amnesia is the like I said, uh, inability to form new memories from the point of brain trauma, and we have a a number of of interesting case studies in psychology in general in the real world uh, of these anterograde amnesics. So, like I said, Henry Malaysian H.M. He got most of his uh, hippocampuses hippocampi. I don't know which one, uh, removed because of intractable epilepsy, which left him with about three years of retrograde amnesia. So three years up to the brain surgery, uh, he he had forgotten um, because uh, the trauma to getting to the uh, hippocampus likely removed some of those connections in his cortex because the hippocampus is inside the 
medial, uh, this is the medial portions of the temporal lobe. So it's inside that. So they had to get, get down in there. So that, that probably, that, that movement likely caused that retrograde amnesia, but because he had to get his hippocampi removed, um, the vast majority of, of it from his, uh, from his brain, uh, he was left with, uh, pretty much total, total interrograde amnesia, could not form any new memories, lived moment to moment. Uh, this is best conceptualized and um, visualized by the, I don't know, two or three documentaries on Clive Wearing, who did not get brain surgery, but ended up with viral encephalitis, which uh, essentially caused in his whole brain to inflame. And um, because of that inflammation, lots and lots of connections died. And he essentially was uh, left with complete anterograde amnesia uh, and significant. I'm not entirely sure how significant uh, his his retrograde, but fairly significant retrograde amnesia. And he and he lives moment to moment. And now what is a moment for these two gentlemen and then as well as our fictitious character, Leonard Shelby? Moment to moment could be anywhere from, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe up to a minute or two, depending on how much rehearsal is going on. But that's that's about it. That's the extent to which you can actively hold on to information before you need to encode it. And if you've got damage to your hippocampus or you don't have a hippocampus, well, then you're probably not going to be able to encode it. Now, and I'm specifically talking here about declarable memories. So that is memories that are episodic in nature. So being able to put ourselves to mentally time travel uh, and, and or, or even to think ahead uh, we we need we need to be able to form those new memories and and encode that information, and so if you can't encode that information, you essentially live moment to moment, um, and so it it one hundred percent is reliant on how often and how much manipulation of that information you can keep in in your working memory at any given time. Now uh, the movie plays with the quote-unquote, moment um, for whatever the plot needs. So sometimes Leonard gets to re remember things for several minutes. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, he forgets almost immediately or in that scene where the car door slams and he is completely taken out of it because the car door, it just was shocking you know he start he was startled and that startle reflex just took him out of it and yeah it it really comes down to how much perseverating you are doing in the moment that you're consciously aware of what's going what, what's going on and we can see this very clearly in the case studies that i mentioned henry malazan and clive waring and and so when we watch leonard we kind of get a, a sense of how long his uh, ability to do things is. There's a great scene in uh, toward the end of the movie when he f ends up meeting Carrie Ann Moss's character 
and um, she has him. She pours him a beer. She has him spit in the beer. Um, she spits in the beer. He realizes that everyone's uh, that the two of them are spitting in this beer that he ordered, and so he's aware of that. But then he gets up and he goes and walks to a table rather than staying at the bar. Care to contribute? No, thanks. It's for a lot of money. Come on, proceeds are going to charity. Help me out. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so she takes it away from him because she's like, oh, he's not, he's not lying. Oh, oh, damn. Okay. So <laughs> she, she pours him a new glass. She's like, oh, you know what? This, this cup is dusty. Let me get you a new one. Cause she was, she was not, not believing him. You know, she, she wasn't believing him. I want to come back to this, but I want to take a quick break. Uh, let myself drop in a, uh, you know, a, a quick 2021 call to action. And uh, we'll be right back with more on Memento. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown. And that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. There's a great story about um, a character that Leonard refers to as Sammy Jankis uh, and his wife. So I'll get to that in, in, in just a second. But the idea here is that Leonard's talking on the phone with somebody and he's explaining what the condition is. Um, but he is confused about who he's talking to. Um, and he eventually thinks that he is talking to a police officer who thinks that he um, killed someone and did something illegal and he got he gets spooked about that. I guess my biggest issue with this one is, is he's able to keep the conversation going. Uh, 
from what I've read about HM and from what I've read, uh, from what I've seen about Clive Wearing is that holding conversations for far too long doesn't necessarily work because if you lose the beginning thread of the conversation, it's kind of hard to keep the conversation going. Uh, speaking from the, the perspective of the amnesic. So if you lose the, the thread, um, it's hard to probably jump back in. So while the person on the other end is asking him questions, it's difficult to uh, interpret that scene as just somebody who doesn't have this quote-unquote condition and who's just explaining the situation to the audience rather than explaining the situation to somebody else uh, because it, it, it kind of doesn't make that much sense that that much time has passed in this conversation and he's still able to keep the thread of the conversation going. So who is he talking about? Well, as I said, it's this character named Sammy Jankis. And um, the past that we learned from uh, Leonard Shelby is that he was a, an insurance investigator. So he investigated claims. Um, and it looked like he was an insurance investigator for a medical or health insurance company. And so uh, the character Sammy Jankis has the same kind of condition that Leonard explains that he has played by Stephen Tobolowsky. Um, I, th I hope I'm playing that, uh, saying that right. Who is, I suppose, modeled on HM. The kind of uh, tasks that they had HM do, you know, various people in in around his life. Um, he was a very gracious um, test subject, to be honest. He got tested so often, especially right after his surgery, uh, because they were like, oh, boy, look at what we just did. Um, Look at what we just did to this person. I mean, he agreed to it, but oh boy, we better test to see what happens. And they tested him throughout his life to see whether or not he would improve. I don't believe he did, um, at least uh, improving in a you know non-ecological way. I'm sure he improved because he learned strategies and he had help and all of that stuff. But I don't, uh, I don't know if he improved in a, in a way on his own you know, biologically, neurologically. So um, the, Sammy Jenkins is, is kind of this person, this character, had some brain trauma, got enterograde amnesia. They fought, you know, the, the, the wife and, and the wife of Sammy Jenkins filed an insurance claim to get all of his medical bills and all of this stuff covered. And so in an effort to make sure, I guess, that, uh, they're not lying that he was a con man and all of that stuff. You know, they had to put him through a number of tests. And 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 so Leonard is explaining to explaining to the person on the other side of this phone that Sammy uh, the, all of the past about Sammy and all of the things that they put Sammy through uh, as Leonard was the insurance adjuster or ordering all of these tests to see whether or not they'd be approved for the claim. And one of the tests they show in the movie uh, on Sammy, uh, the the experimenter in this, played by a little bit role by um, Thomas Lennon of uh, Reno nine one one fame, and among other things, has him uh, has Sammy Jenkins 
do a set of shock shapes. The idea behind this test is that there are several shapes on a table and the test subject must choose the shape that uh, doesn't have the electrified it, that is not electrified and the hypothesis here is that only declare declarable declarative memories are the ones that are affected by this damage not implicit memory making so you know it sammy should be able to condition be conditioned however unknowingly to which shape because they never change the shape that is electrified um and so conditioning classical conditioning as well as uh operant conditioning should be working on sammy here on an implicit level so he doesn't know that they're working but there's something about certain shapes that should give him pause to choose well that's what the hypothesis is in real life well in not real in not real life in this movie sammy continues to choose the wrong one sammy couldn't pick up any new skills at all but i find something in my research conditioning Sammy should still be able to learn through repetition. It's how you learn stuff, like riding a bike. You just get better through practice. It's a completely different part of the brain from the short-term memory. So I have the doctors test Sammy's response to conditioning. Just pick up any three objects. That's a test? Hey, where were you guys when I did my CPA? Sorry. Ta-da. Oh! What the f***? It's a test, Sammy. We'll test this, you f quack some of the objects were electrified that give him a small shock they kept repeating the test always with the same objects electrified the point was to see if sammy could learn to avoid the electrified objects not by memory but by instinct they kept testing sammy for months always with the same objects carrying the electrical charge oh what the f it's a test sammy test this you quack even with total short-term memory loss, Sammy should have learned to instinctively stop picking up the wrong objects. All the previous cases responded to conditioning. Sammy didn't respond at all. It was enough to suggest that his condition was psychological, not physical. We turned down his claim on the grounds that he wasn't covered from mental illness. His wife got stuck with the bills and I got a big promotion. Conditioning didn't work for Sammy, so he became helpless. But it works for me. I live the way Sammy couldn't. Habit and routine make my life possible. Conditioning. Acting on instinct. Sammy's wife was crippled by the cost of supporting him and fighting the company's decision. But it wasn't the money that got to her. Other times we see Sammy in these flashbacks, uh, because again, Leonard does not have retrograde amnesia, although it's entirely possible he does, and he's just not letting anyone else in on that. I will come back to that speculation toward the end of our discussion because it is it is speculation. So in all of these other flashbacks, Sammy is um, shown to just sit on his butt and watch TV. And his wife is diabetic and requires insulin shots. And so 
it's up to Sammy to provide those shots for her. And he remembers that. He remembers who his wife is, that she's diabetic, that she requires this shot, and that, you know, as long as he is aware of the time, that he will give her the shot. Now, the tragic thing about this character and uh, his wife is that their insurance claim was denied by Leonard. Um, And that's because Sammy kept failing the kinds of tests that he shouldn't have been failing. The implicit learning tasks uh, should have worked uh, within the quote-unquote real world, that is, doctors having the um, knowledge of other anterograde amnesics uh, to to work from. And, and uh, that is the understanding of memory at the time as well. So we have to assume as the audience that the doctors have this, and so they tell Leonard as the insurance adjuster and investigator that, um, you know, it's no bueno. There are things that... Um, there are things that Sammy is doing that don't reflect what other interrograde amnesics do in the in the real world or in real life. And so Leonard's like, well, we got to deny this claim because, you know, they could just be conning us and we're not going to do a payout for that kind of thing. You know, you know, really callous stuff, of course, because you're not even going to give this Sammy Jenkins the benefit of the doubt that he is something different from other amnesics that have been previously have been previously taught maybe his implicit learning was broken i know it's it's entirely possible that his implicit learning was somehow broken at the same time that his explicit memory creation was too so it's you can it, listen neurology is and and these memory dissociations are incredibly difficult it's almost like um, it, it, it's almost like the literature on clinical dissociations in memory are pockets of what could happen. It's quite strange because there's, you know, there's a, uh, uh, there was a, a patient called DB who, um, got a concussion by playing basketball and he ended up, you know, uh, he ended up not being able to place himself into future events, which is quite striking. Then there's KC, Kenneth Cochran or um, Corcoran or something like that, who who was a, um, a favorite of Endel Tolving uh, up in up in the Toronto area. And he had no issues with um, with semantic memories you know, being able to, to, to know things. And, and one of the things that Endel uh, videotaped him saying was that he knows how to change a tire on his car, but how do you know how to change a tire if you've never changed a tire? And, you know, there are more of those, let's be honest, but that's the one that I show my students. And so there, there are like pockets of all of these am- various uh, amnesias. And of course... Sammy could have had damage, but in the movie, in the movie, the fact that his implicit systems weren't working wasn't enough for this insurance claim to go through, and so there you go. He forgot. Uh, He kept forgetting, and uh, the tragedy here is that um, he accidentally uh, sends his wife into a diabetic uh, coma 
because he gives her too much insulin because she tricks him uh, to see whether or not he would stop. But he doesn't stop. He continues with the second shot right after he gave her the first shot because he doesn't remember that he gave her the first shot. So it's really tragic. It's really it's a really tragic story um, that Leonard tells this person on the other side of the phone. It's a really tragic story. Really, really. Like, oh, my God, it's so tragic. It's like, oh, man, only because only because. Their insurance claim was denied. I would say that's the only way. It's the only way. It's wild. So those are the ways that 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 memory, I think, is, you know, mostly presented uh, as accurate. It's, It's a decent, accurate portrayal. I will say that there are film license there's artistic license taken in in support of the story which is a fictitious story so we have to we have to bend a little bit in that we have to bend a little bit to that because honestly it's um you i I don't know how enjoyable um, maybe the story would be enjoyable if it was, you know, Clive wearing 30 seconds. But but then it would be kind of difficult to have the main character advance his own story. So it would always need the help of other people to advance the story. I know he tattoos himself and he writes some he takes pictures of things and writes notes on the back of his Polaroids. But uh, in the movie, there are things that Leonard is able to do to advance his own story beyond that, be, be, beyond these pictures, beyond um, his tattoos, even though he does get the tattoos, which is quite, which is quite amazing, actually, tattooing your body with things that you need to help you remember uh, what it is that you're doing <laughs> every, every from moment to moment after waking up and so on and so forth. My favorite scene about him waking up from something, uh, <laughs> he sees, so he, he wakes up and he's in a bathroom and he's like, huh, I don't know what's going on. Okay, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a suit, I'm in the bathroom, I'm waking up. Hmm, I don't feel drunk. Which is by far the best, like exploring his scene after he's been unconscious, and be of course being unconscious for anyone is and and not knowing that's that's where you fell asleep. Like most of us, we know where we fall asleep, and then when we wake up, we're like, oh yeah, you know, I was just in my bed, unless you know you're out partying or whatever, and you get blackout drunk and all of that stuff. But of course, he doesn't get blackout drunk. He doesn't really drink. I mean, they show him drinking a beer, but he doesn't really like imbibe too many things that cause him to lose contact with reality, which I would imagine is really important uh, for somebody in his situation, because um, getting to that place probably makes your job a lot harder, right? A lot, lot, a lot, lot harder. So that's just that's just a really great scene to show how he kind of has to work through all of this um 
uh, I guess we'll call it anxiety um, from moment to moment, um, how he places himself from moment to moment and um, moves from moment to moment, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's quite, it's, it's quite the exploration of how memory does work. What difference does it make whether he was your guy or not? It makes all the difference. Why? You're never going to know. Yes, I will. No, you won't. I will. Somehow. I'll you know. won't remember. When it's done, I will know. It'll be different. Well, I thought so, too. In fact, I was sure of it, but you didn't. That's right. The real John G. I helped you find him over a year ago. He's already dead. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about um, with respect to this movie is this, this sort of speculation associated with this movie because of of how of how it works so the thing that i wanted to mention first is um I, I, so i asked my students what's an inaccurate portrayal of memory in this movie and uh <laughs> this is, so this is the new thing that i learned um today which i never really thought about i mean i, I guess i kind of thought about it but sort of stays in the back of my mind when i think about how memory and amnesia is portrayed generally in this movie. I will go, I will go as toe to toe with anyone in a debate about the accuracy of this. I mean, I, in my, in my, in my, in my previous episode of this, the first episode of this show of this, of this series, um, I talk about on a scale from one to seven, how accurate is the memory portrayal? And I would say six. I would honestly say six um, because it's it's good. It's better than 51st States. It's better than finding Dory or finding Nemo. Um, and because it's a central uh, aspect to this movie, I give it a lot of credit for it. But the thing that my students pointed out and, and the vast majority of them pointed out this semester was that he constantly knows where his car is. He constantly knows where his car is. Um, and they never, sh he, they, the movie never shows him taking a picture of where he last parked it. Now, um, he does it once and he says, my car, when he steals the Jaguar from um, a drug dealer, uh, he steals Jaguar. Um, and then so he ends up with the Jaguar for the rest of the movie. But of course, since we're moving back in time, we see him start with the Jaguar. Um, but when we find out that he stole it at the end of the movie, um, but he, he takes a picture of it and he writes it down. <laughs> um, and uh, at one point, Teddy, played by Joe Pantoliano, um, says, let's take let's take my car. Um, and he points to the Jaguar and um, Leonard has his, uh, you know, uh, his uh polaroid out of his car and he's like no that's my car <laughs> but he knows where it is the rest of the time um i suppose that we could give a little artistic license to this but my students really did not like that he knew where his car was all the time um considering that it was a new car to him and that he constantly remembered it but maybe they just weren't showing that uh because it would have gotten redundant or it would have gotten boring or uh, it just would have padded the runtime i guess right it just would have um it just would have would have been dull i suppose 
I suppose. I'm just going out on a limb and saying that that's one of the accuracy components that I will give. I will give to. That's why it doesn't get a full seven. That's why it doesn't get a full seven of memory and amnesia from me. That's why it doesn't get the full rating. It gets a six, though, because it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. I like it. But let's talk about some of the speculation, because while it is fun to talk about memory, I really want to add to what I've said previously. Okay. This is the probably the non-psychology part of this episode. But, but hear me out. As a film nerd, uh, I really like talking about this stuff. And of course, since we just watched it, and I was watching it along with my students, again, for the umpteenth time. Still one of my top five. Still one of, uh, it is top, it is my number one psychology-based film of all time. But um, it is probably top five in just my total films of all time. And, I, and I've seen it, you know, probably a dozen times. And so I was watching it again, and I was exploring it with them. And of course, students who who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever, tr- traditional college-age students. Um, they haven't seen this movie. Just the movie came out before they were born, at least this group of students that I have now. And so it's it's always kind of fun to explore movies that <clears throat> didn't they didn't know existed as part of their life, even though they've probably seen older movies than them. But this one, of course, being a sort of an indie uh, classic, cult classic film that, uh, you know, it probably doesn't show up on their radar. And so they're confused. My, the point of, of describing that is most of the time they are just confused and they ask really, really good questions. So the first question is always, is Teddy telling the truth? Spoilers ahead here. I've tried to be pretty broad throughout the whole thing um, and, and sort of uh, pull away details here. So the, the whole idea isn't ru- ruined of the movie isn't ruined. But of course, these are just my interpretations. You can have your own interpretations. But spoiler alert ahead. At the end of the movie, chrono- uh, both um time length or time run and uh well yeah i guess that's because it's technically the beginning of the story but it's the end of the movie teddy is yelling at uh lenny leonard um and for killing uh the drug dealer from whom lenny ends up getting the jaguar a lot of money and a new suit he's saying you know i've I've been the cop that's been around helping you find this John G who killed your wife and caused this condition in you. I've helped you find and you've killed them and I've kept that, you know, you know how hard that is for me, blah, blah, blah. And so Leonard creates a story that um, John Edward Gamble, Teddy, only my mother, calls me Edward, um, to find that that's his John G. And so he writes down Teddy's license plate and says, don't believe his lies on the back of his, uh, back of, I was going to say computer, Jesus, uh, (laughs) on the back of his Polaroid. And the forward advancement in the color vignettes and scenes 
are all in an effort to find this new John G who he does not remember creating this lie about Teddy, but eventually kills Teddy. And so are we to believe the story that is presented to us in the beginning of the movie, which begins with, there's no spoiler alerts here, because it begins with uh, Leonard killing Teddy. We find out who this character is. And the idea here is that Leonard created this whole thing in his mind because it's what gives him purpose from day to day. Which is truly tragic. Let's let's be honest. It's truly tragic. You know, he has to give himself purpose because he never he will never remember unless he writes it down, but then will he believe that that what he wrote down? Like, why doesn't he um he gets, you know, he gets Teddy's license plate number tattooed on him. What is he going to do after he's done killing Teddy? He's got this license plate now. And that's not going to work. So does he create, does he keep creating these stories? Um, is, is Teddy lying to him or is Teddy telling the truth? And there's a great part of filmmaking that I truly love, which is, uh, and, and, you know, TV shows and the story, just, I guess, stories in general, is it, do you believe what is being shown to you? Of course, I'm talking about fiction, not news or anything like that. Um, do you believe what is being told to you and shown to you? Or do you trust that the narrator is the hero of their own stories. And we have to determine whether or not Leonard is the hero of his own story. He could just be the villain of his own story going around, um, you know, killing people who he thinks uh, murdered his wife uh, and gave him this condition, you know, by launching his head into the mirror or whatever. And you have to wonder whether or not Teddy is telling the truth. So some of my students believe that Teddy was telling the truth that, um, and, and based on how Leonard talks to the audience uh, through his internal monologue at the end, do I tell myself lies um, to make myself feel better? Yes. Doesn't everyone kind of kind of a that's how he's kind of presenting it to the audience like you tell yourself lies to make yourself feel better i do the same thing i just happen to have a condition which doesn't let me remember that i tell myself lies to make myself feel better you do so it's kind of uh, it, it's hard to tell what's true and what's not in this movie because teddy brings up this bombshell at the end, after we're done hearing all about Sammy Jankis, he brings up this bombshell about how Leonard was the one who is Sammy. Sammy's not real. Sammy's just conjuring uh, to, ex to help explain Leonard's condition. So Sammy isn't real, that Sammy is Leonard, and that his wife was diabetic, and he accidentally killed her 
by injecting her twice in a row with insulin and that she wasn't brutally beaten and raped and he wasn't attacked in his uh, house. But it doesn't make sense. I, I, I hear that, and some of my students were fairly adamant that, like, you know, these flashes back to uh, these flashes back to him and his wife, who's played by um, Georgia Fox um, from CSI, uh, that it, it doesn't align. It doesn't align to me with how uh, Leonard explains how Sammy accidentally murdered his wife, uh, euthanized her, basically, uh, and how Leonard explains his own wife's death. She can't die both ways. She can't be the woman from the Sammy Jenkins' wife. She can't be that and then also be Leonard's wife on how he remembers her. So if we take both stories as true, there is there is no overlap, right? We can't um we can't agree with Teddy saying that Leonard is Sammy and Sammy uh, uh accidentally killed um his wife because she was diabetic. There therefore Leonard accidentally killing his wife because she was diabetic. And then also believing Leonard in that oh, and Teddy. Teddy also says, you know, I helped you uh, I helped you find your John G who killed your wife and gave you this condition. Um, so both of those things can't be true because his wife can have died in two separate ways at two separate times. So which one do you believe? Do you believe Teddy? Well, he gives up the goose. In my opinion, he gives up the goose by combining both flashback stories from Leonard's point of view. Now, it could be that Teddy is just making things up. He's lying to get Leonard to keep doing his dirty work, um, you know, because he's an undercover uh, drug uh, drug enforcement officer or police officer and like, uh, you know, the drugs division or whatever of LAPD, I believe they're in L.A. I'm not entirely sure. They're definitely set in California. Fun fact, the outside scenes were filmed in North Hollywood, short uh, a short distance from where I lived um, it, and where my, my grandparents lived, which is, you know, just a fun bit of trivia I like to give my students, especially the longer that I'm away from those places, but then see uh, North this small strip of North Hollywood that they filmed on the street, the small strip, um, I recognize it still. It's, it's awesome. But... Do we believe um, Leonard is out for his killer or do we believe Teddy that he found his killer? Teddy helped him kill his killer, uh, the killer um, and and the rapist. Um, or do we believe that Teddy is just interpreting Leonard's story as Sammy as a cover for what Leonard did to his wife? can't have it both ways and so i'm in the camp that sammy is a real person from leonard's real life we're not saying that leonard has retrograde amnesia we're not saying that he has retrograde amnesia we are just saying that he has enterograde amnesia he has this condition who that doesn't allow him to create new memories which is fine which is really really fine 
Um, he doesn't have to have retrograde amnesia, although it is entirely possible that he does. But nothing in the story tells us that he does. And that's critical because he seems to remember very clearly things about his life prior to his brain trauma. Um, and it seems as though when Teddy's trying to tell him this lie uh, about his um, his reliance on the Sammy Jenkins story, that he was the one um, who was getting tested and wasn't remembering the wasn't remembering the you know, the shock shapes or or being tested or the fact that his wife was diabetic and instead of pin, pinching her thigh he's actually um putting the injection into her thigh um so cuz injections feel like pinches right so that's the idea that we're supposed to be getting from Teddy just trying to blow the whole thing open so i don't necessarily believe teddy I don't necessarily believe that um, the two stories can coexist in real life. But of course, it's not a lot is shown, not a lot is detailed. And so it leaves people to confusion, um, especially my students who are very confused, especially with the way that the um, the runtime of the film is played out, the original theatrical cut with the um, with essentially the beginning starting with the end of the story and the end of the movie um, bridging the backwards with the forwards um, and sort of the uh, inflection point of the plot, which I think is such a fun way to tell a story, to be honest with you. And I, I, I don't know if anyone's come close to telling a story quite as good uh, as the Nolans do here. Uh, it's, cut beautifully now it's um i said in the in the previous in the first episode of the show uh talking about this and giving the details uh of this story uh on the dvd which who has a dvd these days i'm sure you can find uh the cuts of the film elsewhere online now but uh there were different versions you had to do secret menu stuff you had to like press buttons and get to a secret form of the menu but there were different ways of watching the the movie so you could watch it in chronological order so therefore the the start of the movie would be in black and white and then at the inflection point it would turn to color and then it would take you to uh the end of the story which of course as i said is the beginning of the film in the theatrical version and there are a couple of other ways to watch it you can just watch there um i believe are uh, ways of watching it where you can just watch the black and white together and you could just watch watch all of the um the color vignettes uh in order so there's no interleaving you just watch them separately but in the same direction that they were played theatrically so the color goes backwards and the um uh black and white go go forwards and then you could just watch the color in the correct chronological order so reversing the scene there's all kinds of stuff that people have done to um sort of put the pieces of this story together but of course i'm just talking about how the audience views the uh stories about our unreliable narrator and then 
our character who has ulterior motives um, in the theatrical version. I have not watched it any other way. I have not watched this film any other way. I do think I want to watch it in um, story order, in chronological order for story. So start with the black and white scenes and, and work our way forward from there. But, I mean, I'm not entirely invested in that because I, I still do love how they play with this. And one of my students, uh, I'll end with this. One of my students um, brought up a really uh, fun aspect uh, when talking about the uh, film in general, right? So again, it's confusing. It's a confusing film. It's confusing narrative. And it takes people a while to figure out what exactly is going on. And that's what I find so great about it. The student said that the way that Christopher Nolan pieced this story together for the theatrical version was putting us in Leonard's shoes because of how frantic and um, disconcerting his anterograde amnesia is. It's It gets to the point where we're like, wait, what's going on? And that's because Leonard is also doing, wait, what's going on? And... So it, it this sort of discombobulates the viewer. And so the student really appreciated the fact that uh, that they did this. Really, really appreciated the fact that that um, Christopher Nolan and as well uh, Jonathan Nolan, who wrote the screenplay, did it this way because it um, a, gives us a glimpse into the sort of terror and anxiety that somebody with anterograde amnesia might have. So, yeah. So I'm going to end the podcast show here. I don't have anything to plug at all. I just uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll, we'll be back with uh, some guests uh, in the next few episodes, uh, a new guest host coming up and then a returning guest host in the next couple of episodes. I'm looking forward to that as we close out the year with a few more episodes on the show. Uh, so I do thank you for listening. And until the next episode.